So good to see everybody. Um, it's good to be back on this side of the globe. Um, last 14 days or so, Nathan and I spent a total of three of them, 72 cumulative hours, either on a plane or being delayed from a plane and three canceled flights and multiple other delayed flights. But the Lord was so good to us. And we'll give you, Lord willing, a more full update soon. But for those who prayed with us, thank you. Um, you can't, even when we do give a full update, you can't put into words. It's like going to one of the most beautiful places on earth. You've all been there. You try to take a picture. You bring it back. You show everybody your fancy picture. Nobody cares because it doesn't do justice. Um, we're going to try. We know you care. We're going to try to give you a glimpse sometime soon of the good work that we saw the Lord doing and allowed us to be a part of. But thank you, thank you, thank you for your praying. For those who don't know, Pastor Nathan and I just got back from India 48 hours ago, not quite that many hours ago, so our brain is still in the wrong time zone. But let's pray together, and then we'll jump in to our adult discipleship. <clears throat> oh, Father, thank you for another opportunity for the church, the people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, to gather as a prelude to the forever gathering in glory when we will be never scattered again, gathered forever around the Lamb, around His throne, seeing and enjoying Your glory, loving our brothers and sisters as we ought. And we pray that today our hearts would be stimulated to hope in the coming age, and from now to then, to fight by the Spirit's power for true holiness and perseverance in the faith, and to point others to the Lamb who is the all-sufficient Savior. Lord, we pray for the kid and teen classes that are gathered behind us. Pray today as they look at uh, Numbers 21 in the children's classes the doctrines of God and Christ and salvation in the teen classes. Lord, would you meet them in open hearts to see, to believe your word, and do the same for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I say my intro comment, something like this. Every week we are doing a core doctrines series. It is going through our elder affirmation of faith, and today we have made our way to, uh, I think, Article 10, in our Elder Affirmation of Faith, it's a, just a statement of core beliefs. What does the Bible teach? That's what we're walking through, the big doctrines of the Bible. And today, as you see, is week one, biblical theology. It's week one because it's the first Sunday of April. For, so for those who care to be reminded about or learn our process, the first Sunday of every month, we're doing biblical theology. What does the Bible say about this big truth? The second Sunday of every week, you can see, is historical theology. What has the church believed? What have some of the big battles been to, to wrestle for fidelity? And then finally, the third week of every month, uh, we're doing practical theology. So what? What does this great truth look like in our life? And then the fourth Sunday, uh, the teen and kid classes continue on with their study, but the adults alternate on the fourth Sundays between just unscripted fellowship and then the alternate Sunday's prayer together. So we're on week one because it's the first Sunday of April, we're looking at biblical theology under this doctrine, God's saving work in faith 
and sanctification. If you're not familiar with that big word, sanctification, it's the ongoing process that happens in the life of every true Christian to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. So today, we're going to look at this doctrine, and I want to warn you, uh, as we do every week, we read the affirmation. Usually it's a slide or two, sometimes three or four. Today it's nine slides, so you have to listen carefully, and you have to listen quickly. Here we go. We believe that justification and sanctification are both brought about by God through faith, but not in the same way. Justification is an act of God's imputing and reckoning. Sanctification is an act of God's imparting and transforming. Thus, the function of faith in regard to each is different. In regard to justification, faith is not the channel through which the power or transformation flows to the soul of the believer, but rather faith is the occasion of God's forgiving, acquitting, and reckoning as righteous. But in regard to sanctification, faith is indeed the channel through which divine power and transformation flow to the soul. And the sanctifying work of God through faith does indeed touch the soul and change it into the likeness of Christ. That's the summation. Now, we have eight more slides to unpack it. We believe that the reason justifying faith necessarily sanctifies in this way is fourfold. Now, look at this word, necessarily. You can't be justified and forego being sanctified. It's necessary. Here are four reasons. First, justifying faith is a persevering, that is, continuing kind of faith. Even though we are justified at the first instant of saving faith, yet this faith justifies only because it is the kind of faith that will surely persevere. The extension of this faith into the future is, as it were, contained in the first seed of faith as the oak in the acorn. Thus, the moral effects of persevering faith may be rightly described as the effects of justifying faith. So, the tree is in the seed, and it necessarily grows. Second, we believe that justifying faith trusts in Christ, not only for the gift of imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sins, but also for the fulfillment of all of his promises to us based on that reconciliation. Justifying faith magnifies the finished work of Christ's atonement by resting securely in all the promises of God obtained and guaranteed by that all-sufficient work. Third, we believe that justifying faith embraces Christ in all his roles. Creator, sustainer, savior, teacher, guide, comforter, helper, friend, advocate, protector, and Lord. Justifying faith does not divide Christ accepting part of him and rejecting the rest. All of Christ is embraced by justifying faith, even before we're fully aware of or, under, or fully understand all that he will be for us, as more of Christ is truly revealed to us in his word. Genuine faith recognizes Christ and embraces him more fully. Fourth, this is the final of that section, we believe that this embracing of all of Christ is not a mere intellectual assent or a mere decision of the will, but is also a heartfelt, spirit-given, yet imperfect, satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. Therefore, 
the change of mind and heart that turns from the moral ugliness and danger of sin and is sometimes called repentance is included in the very nature of saving faith. All right, now we're going to go to a kind of a different theme, point three. We believe that this persevering, future-oriented, Christ-embracing, heart-satisfying faith is life-transforming and therefore renders intelligible the teaching of the Scripture that final salvation in the age to come depends on the transformation of life and yet does not contradict justification by faith alone. The faith which alone justifies cannot remain alone but works through love. We believe that this simple, powerful reality of justifying faith is God's gift which he gives unconditionally in accord with God's electing love so that no one can boast in himself but only give all glory to God for every part of salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the decisive agent in this life transformation but that he is supplied to us and works holiness in us through our daily faith in the Son of God whose trustworthiness he loves to glorify. Two more slides. We believe that sanctification, we believe that the sanctification, which comes by the Spirit through faith, is imperfect and incomplete in this life. Although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of Christ, yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. And then finally, we believe that all who are justified will win this fight. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So what I want to try to do is take those nine slides in six parts and show you the main points of the doctrine of sanctification biblically. We'll spend two more weeks thinking about this historically and practically, but this is the foundation. Uh, first, we'll look at God's work in sanctification that's called imparting and changing or transforming. I get it from this part of point one. We believe that justification and sanctification are both brought about by God through faith, but not in the same way. Justification, imputing, and reckoning. We dealt with that last month. Sanctification is God's act of imparting and transforming. So you're declared righteous and positionally righteous at justification. Though already declared righteous, you are practically transformed in sanctification. What does God's word have to say about this, imparting and transforming? Peter writes, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, you are given grace to obey Jesus Christ, and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus 
is a necessary element of true conversion. You can't have one without the other. Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. and May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is God's aim for all believers. Full sanctification that we read a moment ago and we'll deal with momentarily will never be fully achieved in this lifetime. 1 Thessalonians 4, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but to be changed. That's a Jordan version of but in sanctification. You can't continue to live in the sin for which Jesus died and follow Jesus, who you claim died for you, because that's opposite of the purpose of saving work or sanctification. Romans 6, the great epic discourse on putting sin to death. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, that's when you were lost, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. What's the benefit of being saved? You get to be sanctified. The outcome of that is eternal life. Do you see the process? Verse 22 there in parentheses, having been freed from sin, there's your justification. Enslaved to God, you're converted. You get, you get something. What's the salary package? You get to be changed. You get to display there's a God in heaven whose Holy Spirit is powerful enough to conform us to the image of Christ. If that happens, then the outcome is eternal life. So you can say, who's going to heaven? All who are sanctified. <clears throat> now, number two had those four parts, first, second, third, fourth. I want to take one comment, or, or a few comments on each of the four of those. Okay? Not only does God promise that in the seed of justifying faith, there's an oak of sanctifying fruit, but he promises that all whom he saves, let me get back, will persevere. Okay? So it says, first, justifying faith is a persevering, that is, continuing kind of faith. Now, this is sober, and I know we're at church on Sunday, and it's hard sometimes to connect the dots to reality. That's why we do week three, practical. But let me try to get a little ahead of myself by saying, Anybody who abandons the faith was never truly converted. Never. It doesn't matter what glowing evidence is, like Judas holding the money bag, everybody thinking he's the best possible candidate of Jesus' followers to be the most trustworthy. He was never regenerate. True faith is a continuing, a persevering kind of faith. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If God starts the work, he'll finish it. Philippians 2, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your job. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's to want and to do what pleases him? God's the one doing that. 
He will never fail to do his job in the life of any believer. Concerning perseverance, again, 1 John 2. Why did some people abandon the, the saints and the faith? They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So sober. So sober. Okay, not only perseverance... True saving faith will continue to the end, clinging to Christ alone. But also, uh, second, it said, we believe that justifying faith trusts in Christ not only for the gift of imputed righteousness, get me to heaven when I die, and forgiveness of sins, keep me from hell when I die, but also for the fulfillment of all of his promises to us based on reconciliation. If you don't want all that God is for you in Christ, then you don't want salvation. You can't divide Jesus. So saving faith believes that Jesus is worth more than all the world. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What does that faith sound like? Jesus is more precious than all the world. <clears throat> Acts 10 says, Of him all the prophets bear witness, so your entire Old Testament, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All of Christ for all of life. That's what sanctifying faith sounds like. Third, so it's persevering, it's continuing to believe. Third, this is a increasing faith. Like the seed, the acorn has the oak. True justifying faith gets bigger. Bottom, as more of Christ is truly revealed to us in his word, genuine faith recognizes Christ and embraces him more fully. Some people think, oh, I don't know enough to be a Christian because I don't know all these things about Christ. If you're not a Christian today, listen to this. If you believe Christ died for your sins, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is coming again to rescue all of God's people, you can be saved. Right now. If that's all you know, you can be saved right now. How will you know that you have believed upon him? Everything that's true of Christ revealed in his word to you, everything you learn further of Christ, saving faith will latch on to. You don't have to know it all to be saved, but if you're saved and you see it in scripture, you will embrace him because that's what saving faith does. It increases. Here's one verse. Philippians 3, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, that's justified, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. It's increasing. It's God will reveal to you. He will show you. And as he does, you will embrace him. And then fourth, it is a repenting, a resting in Christ kind of faith. So, 
Um, we see here this is a heartfelt, spirit-given, imperfect, satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. Some of you have heard uh, Piper's summation of Christianity. Uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is a similar kind of theological statement. Being satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus is what sanctifying faith sounds like. And then the bottom, this is sometimes called repentance, but it is included in the very nature of saving faith. Say that another way. No true Christian can hang on to sin for which Jesus died and not be miserable. If you can enjoy your sin knowing Jesus died for it, you're not a Christian. It's a repenting or resting kind of faith. I did not say you will not sin. I am saying the Holy Spirit's very good at his job. <laughs> he won't let you be satisfied. Therefore, Jesus said, bear fruit in keeping, this is John the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus also said it in chapter 4, verse 17. Fruit that corresponds to a resting in Jesus, a turning from sin. Hebrews 6, one of the stiffest warning passages in the entire Bible. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's not saying get past that. He's saying go deeper. You've got the foundation. You have to leave the elementary things. You can't stay an inch deep and a mile wide. You have to go into the depths of the fullness of Christ which every true Christian wants to do. Okay, so we've seen two things. Practical righteousness, imparting and transformation, and we've seen a fourfold configuration of what saving faith, justifying faith, looks like in the life of the believer. It perseveres, believes, increases, and repents. Now, I want you to see that this true faith also empowers us to love. Now, I think you guys wouldn't, it wouldn't take a lot of persuading for you to know what I mean when I say, I believe our generations are under a divine judgment. One of the glowing evidences of that, in my estimation, reading the Old Testament prophets, is the explicit lack of love of believers to believers. I should say, professing believers to believers. If you can eviscerate a person for whom Jesus died and not lose sleep, you're lost. Because Romans 14 says, do not destroy one for whom Jesus died. That's the biggest possible gun Paul could have pulled out of his arsenal. You can't destroy somebody that Jesus died for and be okay with it. You're empowered to love. The faith which alone justifies cannot remain alone, but works through love. This is what Paul was after in Galatians 5, the great fruit of the Spirit chapter. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, Judaism, or uncircumcision, Gentiles, means anything but faith working through love. He's saying the same things James is saying. Show me your faith by agape love coming through you to other believers. 
And if you don't want to do that, you can't follow Christ because this is necessary. Faith working through love. Not only empowered to love, I'm embarrassed at how quick a survey we're looking at here, but I hope it's somewhat helpful. Everything we're talking about, you cannot do by yourself. Everything God requires in sanctification, he provides. You have zero resources in and of yourself to be sanctified. Even as a justified believer, the Spirit produces, and you'll know it's him doing the work if the focus is on Christ. He gives you this power. That's 10.4. No one can boast in himself, but only give all glory to God for every part of salvation. The Holy Spirit is supplied to us and works holiness in us through our daily faith in the Son of God, whose trustworthiness he loves to glorify. So all we say around here, we exist to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ. If that's not ever increasing, we can say God and glory and Jesus all day long, but it's not biblical. Jesus must be prized and cherished and treasured. John 16, Jesus said when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. This is the Holy Spirit. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Is the Holy Spirit revealing to you incrementally, slowly, like watching grass grow and paint dry? <laughs> you can't see it moment by moment. It's not, you're not Elijah on Mount Carmel every single day, fire come from heaven, glowing experience. It's not what I'm talking about. But do you have a greater appreciation of the person and work of Jesus today than you had 10 years ago? If not, we're here for you. We love you. And we love you enough to tell you there's a gigantic question mark hanging over your conversion. Not only is it spirit wrought and Christ glorifying, sanctification, but it is sin fighting. One phrase that has totally lost its meaning, it's a great phrase, we shouldn't throw the phrase away, it just shouldn't be white noise to us. Man, I'm really struggling with such and such. Are you struggling? Are you fighting? Are you making war? Or are you just using Christianese words? Are you fighting sin? Guess who's really good at that? The Holy Spirit <laughs> is sin fighting. Yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart. But we're not okay with that. This gives rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. You never stop fighting. Rick says every day you get a crucifixion and a coronation. You crucify the old man and you crown Christ as king every day. Every day, every day, every day. If you don't want to fight sin, okay, the Holy Spirit will help you. If you don't want the Holy Spirit to help you fight sin, you're not in Christ. But you can't do it by yourself. 
You need a community of faith, it's called a church, to walk with you and help you fight sin. We say around here a lot, the most exhilarating place in the world is to be truly known and truly loved. If you come here and say, I'm not, I don't have much sin to fight, you won't fit in. You're, you know, you can go join the perfect church and then go make it imperfect as you join it. But if you would come to any New Testament church and say, I hate my sin, I got a lot of it, I don't want to live in it, I need help. Welcome to the club. Galatians 5, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The Holy Spirit will give you the necessary resources to fight against the flesh, your old man, your sin nature. You're the great rival to God in your life. There are a lot of them. Satan is one. Other people and their sin against you is another. But the great rival to God in your life is you. It's your flesh. It's your sin. We've been blame shifting since the Garden of Eden. His fault, her fault, the devil's fault. No, it's not. It's your fault. It's my fault. I need the Holy Spirit to help me overcome the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. All that's passing away. But the Holy Spirit can help us. Now, I want you to know something very important about this verse. It's written to a conglomeration of churches, the churches of Galatia, not individuals. You can't do this by yourself. The Holy Spirit fills his people to help his people. First Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. You can't live in your sin and follow the Savior who died for it. First Timothy 6, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight, fight, fight. Take hold. Don't give up. Don't quit. The enemy's already defeated. He can't drag you to hell, but he definitely wants to bring disrepute on the name of Jesus through marring your testimony to Christ. He can't get to Jesus. Victory won. Case closed. Deal sealed. But he wants to bring as much disrepute to Jesus as he can. And his only audience to do that are his people. Fight, 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 fight. Make war. Finally, victory embracing. That's why I prayed the way I prayed at the very beginning for those who can dial up a semblance of what I prayed. We believe that all who are justified will win this fight. We've got to believe that. Listen, we are working today from a position of certain victory. That's not in jeopardy. All God's people will be perfectly unified. All the divisions in the church today, they're going to vaporize soon. You will not be able not to love all the people for whom Jesus died when you're in glory. That's a definite victory. John 17 is going to happen. All God's people will be as unified as the Trinity. That's coming. There's no question about it. 
So we work from a position of certain victory. We will win this fight. Sin will not have the final word. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, I and the Father are one. That's not in question. The golden chain of redemption, we talk about this almost every month, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense, God has done it, it's not in jeopardy, Hebrews 3, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. These two things are married together. If you hold on to Christ, you're going to make it. You let go of Christ, you're not going to make it. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. <laughs> Both of these things are true. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will, 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 will bring it to pass. He will do it. 2 Timothy 1, for this reason I also suffer these things but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It's God's ability to preserve more than our ability to persevere. Last one, 1 Peter 1. What a chain. Can you see these big words? I've got to get my cursor out because it's too good. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now here's five-fold security to obtain an inheritance which is, number one, imperishable. Number two, undefiled. Number three, will not fade away. Number four, reserved in heaven. Number five, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Nobody's undoing what Jesus did. And all God's people receive that promise and say, all right, let's go make war. Let's pursue Christ. Let's keep our eyes on him. And let's do it together. So there's a little bit of God's saving work in faith and sanctification. That's our biblical theology lesson. Lord, week next, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at historical theology, doctrine of sanctification. Uh, I think we have maximum two minutes. If somebody wants to make a comment to rejoice in the Lord or to ask a question. Anybody, anybody, anybody? Yes, just loud and clear, we won't even do the mic. Make sure everybody can hear you. Yeah, that's the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5.48. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I believe that's the key verse of Jesus' longest sermon in the Bible. Here's why. He had just told them three times in Matthew 5, your righteousness has to be more than the Pharisees. I think what Jesus is doing is showing everybody there's no hope. Then he elevates the standard. Oh, I'll never be as righteous as the Pharisees, so there's no hope for me. He makes it even harder. Not only do you have to be more righteous than them, you have to be as perfect as God. And if you're not that perfect, you cannot go to heaven. I think what he's doing is tearing us all the way down 
And then he gives us, here's the Sermon on the Mount in summary. Your father, your father, your father, your father, your father, my father. Go read the Sermon on the Mount now and look at those pronouns. Jesus is saying, if your father is my father, then you're as perfect as I am. I think that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. So you have to get the same father as Jesus. It's the only way you can be as perfect as God. And that happens through faith in the risen Christ. Thank you for bringing that verse out, brother. Hope that helps a little bit and makes you want to go read the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the risen Jesus. Thank you for the present, powerful person of the Holy Spirit who is in and at work in every believer, every Christian. And Lord, we thank you for local churches, which you say are the dwelling place of God, the the playground of the Holy Spirit, where you love to beautify your people with likeness to Jesus, to fill us with faith and persevering uh, intentionality. Thank you for the giftings of the Holy Spirit that help us grow together in Christ and in Christian love and to advance the gospel in this sin-torn world. Lord, fill us to that end. Make us more like Christ. Uh, We know we say that phrase a lot, but you know what it means. So make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have eight minutes before our service resumes.